Let us hear God's word from Titus 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older man be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, and love and patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, a sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. All right. Well, we come here to these two verses, and frankly, we come to a rather hot topic in our culture here today. Um, Last time I spoke on it, and some detail was in First Timothy chapter 6, so it was a couple years ago uh, when we talked through it. But uh, <clears throat> this is a topic we've heard a lot about in the last few years. Even just here on March 5th, the Texas Tech basketball program and uh, university and such suspended their coach for using the Bible's teaching about slavery. So verses like this. Now, on the one hand, it doesn't really matter what he said. The issue was that anyone who says anything positive about slavery at all is going to be shut down and silenced. That's where we are in our culture. When everything happened with George Floyd, everything just went into hyperdrive. And so with Black Lives Matter and the 1619 Project, the issues of colonialism, and of course we just celebrated President's Day here about a month ago, and we constantly hear the founding fathers are racist, we can't listen to them, let's get rid of the Constitution, and so forth. And then of course we have all the critical race theory, specifically and broadly, on that issue. You know, it's gotten to the point where we can't even say master bedroom or master bathroom anymore. Those were, that word master is forbidden in our culture now. We cannot use the term plantation. We cannot say anything positive about the American South or antebellum ways. It's wrong for us to watch Gone with the Wind. We must tear down statues and rename towns and streets, schools and museums. Anyone that had anything to do with the founding of our nation, not just those who fought for the South, Hey, Jefferson Davis and so on and so forth, but even they want to tear down Abraham Lincoln's statue and rename things. This is where we are. And if anyone speaks against this push, they're going to be canceled. <clears throat> when we had our, <clears throat> our conference here last fall, one of the key oppositions to the coming of John Harris was this very issue. Now, ended up he couldn't come because of the death of his fa- in his family and so forth. Um, but 
the, the major opposition that we faced was because he had said at some point in time some positive things about slavery in the South. Now, that doesn't mean he's in favor of slavery. But just because he said some favorable things, he had to be canceled. So because of this, because things have just kind of gone off the deep end, you might say, in our culture, I want to say some things that I've said before, um, but put them together here in these two verses uh, tonight and next time. Now, surely there are many evils regarding American slavery, but blanket statements and a refusal to fairly discuss the issues exposes the woke agenda and contributes to the destruction of America and liberty and law. So let's try to discuss it fairly here tonight and next week, and not just get in a tizzy over this and try to fundamentally transform our culture. So, verse 9 here then, it begins with an assumed word, and notice how the New King James puts it in italics, exhort bondservants, to be obedient to their own masters, and so on. In fact, as you read through verse 10, there is no main verb in these two verses at all. There are verbals, we call them, but there's no main verb. And so, I think New King James, rightly here, takes the main verb from verse 6. And so there we have, remember, verse 1 is the initial command, Titus, you're to speak to these groups of people, and then you're to exhort the young men, and now here, the slaves. As I mentioned last week, or maybe it was the week before, um, exhorting young men is likely a stronger command than just speaking because youthful vigor needs to be directed. Probably why he said that. And now here, in the context of exhorting slaves, this is obviously a difficult situation. <clears throat> so it's going to take a stronger word, you might say. All right, well, <clears throat> let's try to address some different things here. What, first of all, is a slave, or what is slavery spe uh, specifically? You recall that in the Old Testament, there are two kinds of slavery. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 21. <clears throat> now, you may recall when I preached through Exodus that I spent a uh, significant amount of time here in this chapter because of this issue along with some others. And so let's uh, just read a little bit of this, starting in verse 1 of Exodus 21. Now these are the judgments <clears throat> which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. Now, first of all, <clears throat> that is not, in the strict sense of the word, slavery. It is what we call indentured servitude. And there is a fundamental difference here. In this scenario, an Israelite has borrowed money. Hey, maybe he borrowed money to plant his crops or some other thing. And he had a bad harvest. Maybe it was too dry or too wet. And maybe there are health problems. They couldn't get all the harvest in. Whatever it was, they could not pay back on their loan. And usually uh, they would go for some period of time, maybe two years or something like that, until they get to the point where they say, look, 
there's no way we're going to be able to pay this off. So they sell themselves, as it were, to pay off the loan. Okay. And so this is the issue. It's, it's a temporary situation where they serve the person um, from whom they borrowed the money, and they would work for these six years, pay off the loan, and then that was it. They could go free again. Now notice how it continues, verse 3. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then he sh- his wife shall go out with him. Now you see the fairness in all of this the rights of the so-called slave. If the master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be your masters and he shall not go out by himself. So say in this scenario, think of Abraham, right? 318 servants. And say he lent money to some guy there in Canaan or whatever and uh, the person could not pay it off and he then works for Abraham or again, whoever the person would be And while he's there, he comes in single and he sees this nice young lady over here who's one of Abraham's servants says, hey, yeah, I'd like to marry her. And they get married and have children and so forth. That's the scenario here. Hey, the servant was already owned by Abraham. And so again, you see the rights here, rights of the slaves, rights of the owner. All right, then um, verse five, but if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. And the master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an owl, and he shall serve him forever. So here in this um, situation, this man wants to stay. And so he becomes a permanent servant. Now, once again, this is not full-blown slavery. This is a willingness, a desire, a freedom of choice, if you will. This is not stealing someone and forcing them to work and having uh, no recourse at all. This is in the context of indentured servitude and a freedom, a willingness to do this to some degree. Now, you may remember, as I preached through this passage several years ago, that uh, one of the key points that we see in this chapter is that the Bible is very different from the ancient cultures in regard to slavery. In the ancient cultures, slaves had no rights at all. Masters could do anything they wanted. They could beat them, they could abuse them. With the women, of course, they could do terrible things to them and so forth. Um, But the Bible's saying, well, wait a second here. We need to have rights, even when people are in this kind of situation of debt or in terms of service. All right, now continue then in verse 7. If a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. Now we read that, we're like, well, that's not fair. Well, actually it is, because single women could not basically survive in that culture. You couldn't go out and get a job. And, And so by forbidding the master from releasing a female slave, this is actually to protect her. Verse 8, if she does not please her master, who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. You see the rights that she has. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has dealt deceitfully with her. 
And if he has betrothed her to a son, he should deal with her according to the custom of daughters. So here now she's treated as his own, basically. Uh, if he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food or clothing or marriage rights. If he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. Now, obviously, this warrants a whole lot more than I'm saying tonight. But do you see the point? Slaves had rights under biblical law. And that was completely different than what we see in the ancient world in regard to slaves. Owners could do anything. Note even down in verse 20, it says, If a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Again, the ancient world didn't matter. It was his property. He could do whatever he wanted, but not in Israel. So verse 21, notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he should not be punished, for he is his property. You know, we read these things, we're like, oh, 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 that's terrible, that's terrible. But again, in the culture in which Israel lived, these were um, very just laws in comparison to what was normal. All right, now, notice then verse 16. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. Man-stealing was worthy of capital punishment in Israel. And so the idea of service is not in the context of theft in Israel. It's very important we see this, because this is fundamentally different than what we saw in the American South, for example. American South was based on theft, but not here in the scriptures. God forbids the stealing of hum- humans. And so any kind of service that we're talking about that God would um, sanction, I guess you could say, had to do with a kind of freedom, not theft. All right, well, obviously we could say a whole lot more here, but I say these things, and the liars in the media, the liars in politics, even the liars that we hear in our churches would hear these things and go bonkers. As I said at uh, at the beginning, the coach at Texas Tech, I, I don't know what he said. I didn't look it up, okay? And in one sense, it doesn't matter. But he was trying to say there are some positive things from the, from the scriptures in regard to slavery that we can learn from. And he was uh, released. And so anyone who says these things are going to be attacked. All right, another thing that we hear in our culture today is that America invented slavery. Have you heard that one? Every time I hear it, I'm just like, are you just that dumb? I mean, what's going on here? Uh, Obviously, we see it in the scriptures. If you know anything about history, you know this is not true. In fact, we believe in the first century when Paul is writing, in the Greco-Roman world, it was probably about 50 million slaves just in the Roman Empire. And that's not counting other parts of the world. And it was common, of course, for conquering nations to make the people of the conquered nations slaves. And they would kill some, of course. 
They might allow some to stay there or ship them somewhere else or sell them into slavery or take them themselves or whatever it is, right? So uh, the issue of slavery is not unique to America at all. The slave trade, though, of the 17th to 19th centuries in Europe, America, and Africa um, was uh, obviously a, a very great evil in our recent past. And um, <clears throat> one of the things that we have to remember in this context is that there were just as many black people stealing and capturing blacks to sell them into slavery as there were white people doing this. That is not a racist comment. That's just reality. That's what happened. You had warring tribes or something like that who would go and steal people from the neighboring tribe and they would sell them into slavery and make money. They would sell them to the slave ships and take them. they would be taken to Europe or America or whatever. Um, <clears throat> so it, I, in saying this, it's not to condone what happened, but just recognize that it wasn't just the white man that was the problem. All right, now, <clears throat> some masters, of course, we see in history were extremely brutal. Poor conditions, rapes, beatings, this kind of thing, right? Um, terrible situation. But what we are told is that was the norm, or even that's what always happened, which is not true. In fact, most of the time, the slaves were treated much better than this because better conditions meant more productivity. And so the, the slave owner had an incentive to treat them at least moderately well, and regard to the South, less than 50% of Southern landowners actually had slaves. Again, we are told it, this story that everyone in the South had slaves. Well, no, they didn't. Not everybody in the South could afford it. Only the wealthy ones could. And so less than 50% of landowners actually had slaves. Now, some of them were committed Christians, and so they very intentionally tried to follow what we see here in Exodus 21 and other passages, right? And so they tried to treat their slaves, their servants, with good conditions, good education, opportunities for freedom even. Uh, they would not do uh, harmful things to the women or any, anyone else. Unfortunately, that wasn't always the case, <clears throat> And uh, there were many Christians who used passages like Exodus 21 and Titus 2 to justify slavery, to justify even the slave trade, even though verse 16 makes it very clear you can't do that. Um, and they then would ignore the founding documents of our land, which said that God has given the rights of life, liberty, and happiness to everyone, including the black man, including slaves. But instead, they would use the curse of Cain and other passages to justify not applying it there. So there's no question that things were not good in, in these ways. So um, let me now say this. <clears throat> what in our history here in America did the founding fathers endeavor to do to emancipate slaves? Because there were many who tried to do that. Not all of them, but many of them did. And there were three main ways that they tried to emancipate slaves and remove slavery from American society. But remember, we live in a representative government. 
So if they were to write into a constitution total emancipation of, of blacks and slaves, then right, it's not going to pass. You wouldn't get enough votes to do that. And so they knew it. And so they tried to do it in incremental steps. Okay. And so <clears throat> the one thing that we see is at the very beginning of our nation in, in, in a more proper sense and that is this language of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, you may know that they debated. Uh, the common language was life, liberty, and property. But they deliberately did not use that term property because then the southern slaveholders would say, well, look, the slaves are my property. These things do not apply to the black man and to my slaves. So they intentionally used the language of the pursuit of happiness to try to turn attention away from slavery and hopefully lead to the emancipation of slaves eventually. So that's one thing that was done. The other thing that was done was the three-fifths clause. Uh, we probably all have heard of this. And uh, what we usually hear today as well, look, they treated the black man as if he was three-fifths of a person. How terrible of them. Well, actually... The three-fifths clause showed how much they cared for the black man. And what the situation was is that the southern states wanted the, their slaves to be treated as a full citizen. And in, if that were the case, then they would have more votes, they would have more representative power, and so they could keep slavery in place. And the, the northerners who did not want slavery said, no, absolutely not. We are not treating them as full citizens. If you're going to call them property, how can you call them a full citizen? And so through the compromise, they came up with the three-fifths system. And the idea here was then to prevent the slave, uh, pro-slave states and, and voters from having so much representation. And so eventually then they, the hope was they could get rid of slavery. But you know what? We have the exact same thing happening today. We just call them illegal immigrants. We have the exact same arguments being used. Well, we need to treat illegal immigrants as full citizens so they can vote. Give them driver's license and you know, health care and this, that, and the other, right? Well, the goal is to treat them as full citizens so they can vote and they can then, those who want this, can stay in power. And those who are trying to care for the immigrant, truly care for them, okay, they're going to get less ability to vote in, in, in more positive ways. And so we really have the same scenario going on today with illegal immigration. Um, all right, so then the third way the founding fathers, at least some of them, tried to emancipate slaves was the, the 1808 clause. This was in Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution. And by 1808, there was supposed to be the end of the slave trade. And hopefully, this then would end slavery eventually. This is the idea. Now, many founding fathers on an individual level uh, emancipated their slaves, or at least they did when they died, or something like that. But unfortunately, the 1808 year came and went, and the slave trade may have slowed down and even come to an end to some degree, but slavery itself did not go away. And in 1828, 20 years later, 
the Democratic Party was formed. Now, <clears throat> let me remind you again, I am not a Republican. I am an independent, okay? and very deliberately so, because the division is not between Republican and Democrat. That's not the true division in our country. The true division in our country is between conservative and progressive, or if you want to call progressive national socialists or democratic socialists or fascists, whatever you want to call them. It doesn't really matter. It's the same basic ideas, just variations on a theme. The true division is between conservative and uh, these progressive kinds of people. Okay? And so <clears throat> when I say here these things about the Democrats, it's not because I'm a Republican. I'm trying to give just some factual statements here. The Democratic Party was formed in 1828 with the express purpose, with the primary purpose of ensuring that slavery would continue. And that is not an overstatement. Okay, go read your history. It's exactly what they were doing. They, as Democrats, tried to prevent laws from benefiting slaves. They would seek to ensure slavery in new states. And it was the Democratic Party that led the South during the Civil War. Later, the Ku Klux Klan, the Jim Crow laws. This is not alt-right, guys. This is the Democrats. They are the ones who led the way. The alt-right idea is really a lie in the end because the alt-right is really something that happened after World War II. And so all these things about the American slavery system was far before this so-called alt-right uh, ideas. And so <clears throat> know your history. Don't believe the lies that you're being told on these things. All right, so let's now come to our situation today. Do we have slavery today in our culture? We certainly have some slavery in parts of the world. But what about here in America? Well, I think the answer has to be yes in a certain way. We have a certain kind of slavery. Think, for example, of the inner city. How many times do you hear people say about the, the terrible conditions of the inner city? Or right, the uh, March Madness is going on, on you know, right now and so forth and and, and you often hear people say, well, so-and-so got out of the inner city. They got out of their bondage. Sometimes you'll hear them say language like this. They, they, they're a good basketball player. Or they're a good football player or whatever. They got out of their situation. Because in those situations, it's a kind of slavery. But do you recognize that the policies in the inner cities are deliberately to enslave the black man? In this kind of way, not with chains, not with whips, but with drugs, with families, with no fathers, and so on and so forth. This is intentional. Black Lives Matter, right? They, they are intentional to try to destroy the family. Right? Another way we see it is with the 16th Amendment, for example, the establishment of the IRS, income tax, the Federal Reserve, and so forth. Right? This is a form of slavery. Try not paying your taxes and see what happens. We are slaves in this sense. Not in the full sense of slavery, but in this sense. 
We've all lived through the COVID shutdowns in the last few years. This is a form of slavery. You couldn't even go to the store without a mask on for a while. And if you went in without one, they'd kick you out. There's no freedom there. There's no God-given rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Forced vaccinations and so on and so forth. Add to that all the cancel culture. This is a kind of slavery. It scares people. One of the things that we faced with our conference is people were afraid. They were afraid to be canceled. And so they wouldn't participate. They wouldn't come. They may have watched online, but they wouldn't come in person because they were afraid to be canceled. We have an educational system that is government schools. It's not public education, it's government education. That is a form of slavery. Look at what they've done with the shutdowns to these poor kids. Did you hear the um, statistic out of Chicagoland here in the last month that of the 33 school districts, not one student passed a proficient amount in math and English, wasn't it, Nailene, or grammar or something like that? Reading, whatever it was, yeah. And and <clears throat> this is deliberate, guys. Pay attention to what's happening. Yes, some of it is ignorance on their part, but some of it is very deliberate. We live in an economy that is an inflationary economy. Hey, with the Federal Reserve and getting the dollar off gold, this is a form of slavery. Try going paying for groceries at the store. I mean, what's going to happen with these bank shutdowns? With these bailouts, that's just going to add to our inflation. They're pushing toward a nationalized banking system. All of these things are forms of slavery. We have some freedoms, but they are restricted. We are essentially slaves. One of the most effective forms of slavery is giving someone some freedoms within an overall system of bondage. It gives an illusion of a free society, and that's where we are in our culture now. Unless, of course, you have lots of money and you're in power and you're on the right side of things. Then you can do whatever you want. So, with some of this in mind then, some of this is background, some of this to try to show the relevance of Paul's words. Let's come back here to Titus. And now expand on it in some of these ways. In Titus 2, we see then um, uh, in verse 9, bond servants be obedient to their own masters. Now let me first say this. This is not unrelated to verses 1 to 8. In verses 1 to 8, this has to do with families, right? You have the older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and now slaves. The emphasis here is on the family, even here in this way. Now, in the Roman culture, and I'll say more about some of these things, Lord willing, next week, but in the Roman culture, slaves, slavery, were key to making that culture work. There were many men and women, old and young, who were slaves. As I mentioned a little bit ago, upwards of 50 million slaves in the Greco-Roman world in the first century. Well, many of them 
became Christians. Some owners did, but certainly many slaves did. Now, in the older churches, such as in Ephesus and Colossae, so we see in uh, in, uh, Ephesians, Colossians, and 1 Timothy, that both the master and the slave are addressed. Obviously, we also have the book of Philemon. But here, notice, Paul doesn't address the master. He only addresses the slave, which is probably an indication that in the churches in Crete, these rather young churches, that they had no masters yet who had become Christians. They are all slaves at this point. Now, slaves in the first century were either household slaves or field slaves. All right, now maybe that's an oversimplification, but generally speaking, that's what we would see. And so some of the slaves would work in the home. Right, so there would be cleaning and cooking and sewing and fixing things. Also teaching children, uh, being a steward of the house, uh, gardening, so on and so forth. And in these settings, these slaves were usually pretty well cared for. They had more freedoms than slaves out in the fields. Uh, there was less abuse. Uh, they had better relations with their owners and so on and so forth. In fact, if you were a household slave, you were often better off than a free man who was a peasant. And so in that culture, many people wanted to become household slaves because it was better than trying to make ends meet on your own. And so remember what we read in Exodus 21. Some people want to stay in that indentured servitude kind of scenario. Well, the other kind of slaves were the slaves in the fields and in the mines. And these conditions were much harsher, much more difficult. Uh, These slaves tended to be beaten and abused much more than those in homes. Now, in our culture, um, in the the time before the Civil War and so forth, you typically had the same kind of things. You had slaves that worked in the house and slaves that worked in the fields. All right, now... I know I'm doing a lot of extra here today. This is what I, I don't normally do this. <laughs> but let's bring it now to the point. The point is, how does a slave who is a Christian live within a slave system? Okay. I'll say more about this next week because Paul says more things in verse 10. But how does a slave who is a Christian in the first century live in that setting? How is he going to be faithful to the Lord? How is she going to be faithful and godly in the scenario of being a slave? Think also with early America. Same kind of question. We sing lots of spirituals that came from this era. We have several of them in our hymnal. So how does a slave live as a Christian in a slave system, or then for ourselves, in this quasi-slave system in which we live here in America, with some freedoms, but only to a point, how do we live as Christians? Again, with the shutdown and so forth, we saw how far our freedoms really go, especially if you lived in Illinois, or if you lived in California, or Colorado, or Canada, we see that that there's only so much freedom that they are giving to us. 
And that amount is getting less and less. And don't think that all those problems have gone away. Did you hear about the pastor that was arrested for decrying the LGBTQ issues in Canada? He too was arrested. These things aren't going away. Let's put it this way. What does the illegal immigrant who is a Christian do when he or she is bound and trapped by their coyote or they have to work in a sweatshop or whatever it is? What about the sex slave scenarios? Okay. And, and um, this is such a huge issue. Okay. You remember when the Colburns were here? Remember they talked about their one daughter working with uh, sex trafficked girls? Um, this is a, a huge problem around the world. So what does a Christian do in these scenarios? Well, one of the things that we have to remember, and as I understand the little bit I've read about this coach in Texas, is that all, all of us are slaves of God. He made us. He owns us. He has told us what we must do. And for some of us, he has saved us. We must obey God. We are slaves of God. And that ultimately is true freedom. Though, of course, in our sinful old man, we we don't like that at all. So we have this broad teaching in Scripture, right? We just saw this in Romans 1 verse 1, didn't we? Paul said he was a slave. And now we have this here too. All right, so... Let's now take it in this direction. How do we apply some of these things in a situation, even if we don't have slavery in our culture, even this quasi-slavery? How would we apply these words? Do we just say, well, it doesn't apply to me and move on? Well, in a broad sense, we can read verses 9 and 10 and apply it in the situation of the worker and the owner, the employee-employer relationship. It doesn't fit perfectly, of course, but it does have points of application. We here in America do have some freedoms, thankfully. Uh, We're not in total bondage. Um, And so we do have freedoms as workers. Obviously, you have uh, scenarios over the last century, especially with some of the unions that helped to ensure freedoms for workers Some of them, unfortunately, have gone way too far and have gotten into really bad places. But but the point is that as workers, whether you're an indentured servant paying off a loan, whether you're a servant owned by Abraham, you're working for your master. And so, you know, Stan, whether it's you working in your job or Eric at the school there or whoever it is, right, as we are working, we have, in a sense, a master. And we must work and do our job well and if we don't we're going to lose our job so our point of application here today is certainly not that we want to institute reinstitute slavery maybe reinstituting indentured servitude to pay off loads might be a helpful thing maybe we wouldn't have so much debt Um, but surely we can apply these principles to our jobs the problem is The woke mob won't let us do it. Even the woke mob in the church won't let us even discuss these things. We have to support Black Lives Matter. All oppressors must be put down. 
The ideas of submission and obedience and service must be done away with. Instead, we must rebel, we must revolt, the oppressed must rise up. And again, this is thing, these are things that we hear even in churches in our culture. Okay. Now, I'm going to expand on, on some of these things next time, but let's keep looking here then at verse 9. Hey, the initial command here is exhort these slaves. Hey, this is the command of Titus. And what are they supposed to do? Well, they are to be obedient to their own masters, and they are to be well-pleasing in all things. Now, the rest of the words, the end of verse 9 and end of verse 10, all modify those two ideas. And so we'll look at those things next time. But, but here tonight, as we're drawing this uh, to its conclusion... Um, the first thing is exhort slaves, Titus, to be obedient to their own masters. <clears throat> now, if you have another translation, you may have a different word than obey here. It's the same word as verse 5. In verse 5, it says about wives, young women, being obedient to your husbands. But you remember what I said there. That's not the normal word for obey. Is the normal word for submit or be subject to. And that's what we have here. Now, I'll say more about this next time. <laughs> but this is a huge statement. Okay? Think about this. In the ancient world, masters could do anything with their slaves. They had to obey. And here comes Paul and says, no slaves, submit. There's a fundamental difference between submission and obedience. There are definitely places of overlap, but there is a fundamental difference. We see this in the scriptures in regard to children, right? Children, obey your parents. But then in the fifth commandment, we are to honor our father and our mother. There's a difference there. And so masters are the authority of the slave. And the slave must do what the masters say. <clears throat> but there's a limit to that. Okay? If the master is calling on his slave to do something that is unjust, then the slave has a right to say no. That's what this word is telling us. Normally, yes, they're going to obey and do what the master says. But there's going to come a point in time where they are going to say no. And the same is true with the husband and wife scenario. There's a place where no is permitted. And by saying, submit slaves to your masters, Paul is elevating slaves just by that word. Notice also, he says, uh, be obedient or be submissive to their own masters. Now, generally speaking, in the ancient world, that was true, right? The, the slave had to submit to their own master, not to another master. And yet, if you were a slave, you had to do what anybody said. And so by Paul saying, submit to your own master, implying you don't have to submit to that master over there, is also elevating slaves and making them, uh, giving them more rights. Okay. <clears throat> Now, the phrase here, in all things, the New King James puts it after to be well-pleasing. It actually comes before that in the Greek. And so the question is, where do we put it? Um, 
I'm inclined to think with the flow of thought, it makes more sense to say, be submissive to your own masters in all things, to put it there. And then secondly, to be well-pleasing. But obviously we're to be well-pleasing in all things too. And so in many ways it applies to both. And so in all things, <clears throat> even the things you don't like so much. <laughs> okay, so if the boss or the, the master says, go clean the latrine, okay, <laughs> I wonder what Rebecca was doing for the last few weeks out, <laughs> out in the desert. You know, I'm sure there were things that were not pleasant at all. Okay. But there are other things, of course, that masters or our bosses say that we enjoy doing. And so whether it's the household servant teaching the children or the field slave who is to pick at the rocks for hours on end, whether it's weeding flower beds or making dinner or hoeing acres or fields, stacking hay, mending saddles, mucking stalls, clearing brush, whatever it is, there are some things that we just don't like doing. <laughs> but in all things, we are to be submissive to our masters. And again, Today, as we make this point of application, think of your jobs. Think of what your boss is telling you to do. Every one of us here who has a job can list off some things you really don't like doing in your job. Okay, But we do it anyway. There are also other things that we really do enjoy. But we are called to do all of them. Submit to your employer, to your master in this sense. And then secondly, he says, exhort bond servants to be well-pleasing. Hey, same basic idea here, seek to please your boss, seek to please your master, serve well, be satisfying to him or her possibly, be a faithful servant, be a faithful worker. Don't just grudgingly submit, willingly submit. Don't just do enough to get by, work hard, be diligent, be a conscientious worker. Obviously, in the scriptures, we think of Joseph in this context. With Potiphar in the prison, with Pharaoh, he did this very thing. Think of Daniel and his friends in, uh, in uh, Babylon. They did the same thing. Now, there were things they refused to do. Joseph would not do what Potiphar's wife wanted. Daniel and his friends would not eat the food that the king wanted them to eat. And so, again, you see this idea of submission, not just blanket obedience, even there. So, I've said a lot tonight, um, and in many ways you might want to go in different directions here, but I'm trying to lay some kind of background here, a broader discussion about this, and, and not just jump to, um, you know, well, just you know, be a good worker at work or something like that. There's more to it than that. Uh, but in the end, in our scenario, this is our primary point of application. So when you go to work tomorrow and your boss tells you to do something, okay, if you like it, great. If you don't, okay, be well-pleasing. <laughs> okay, maybe you have to grit your teeth a little bit, <laughs> but okay, this is what we are supposed to do in these kind of scenarios. How often do we hear people say, it is hard to find good workers anymore? Well, be one of those good workers. That's what Paul is telling slaves, quasi-slaves, even the, uh, those of us in our freedoms, let's work hard. All right, well, <clears throat> there is more to say here, and I intend to uh, conclude this thought next time. Let's 
Go ahead and pray together. Our Father, our God, we thank you uh, for your word. We are thankful, Lord, that you do not shy away from hard truths and hard realities. Uh, we are thankful, Lord, that um, you being our master is actually a great blessing and a, a, um, a place of true freedom when we serve you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and apply these things, and not just in a, uh, if you will, um, easy way, but as we address uh, this broader issue of slavery, not just in the history of our country, but the kind of slavery that we endure right now. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear these words of Paul and, uh, and, and seek to obey uh, what you have commanded through him. And so we pray here now, especially as uh, we leave and we return to our jobs tomorrow for so many of us, even for the younger people, their job of being a student. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would help us uh, to do so willingly, that we, sh we would do so to be well-pleasing to those in authority over us, that we might then be a good witness for the truth and honor you and uh, uh, extend your kingdom here in this way. Uh, we pray for your strength by your spirit, and we pray all this then in Jesus' name.